0: I'm Ariel Kroon. And I'm Christina De La Rocha. Welcome to Season 3 of Solar Punk Presents, the podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a future we'd like to live in. Because if solar punk as a genre of fiction dreams about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future, solar punk as a movement rolls up its sleeves and gets down to the business of bringing it about in the
1: present. Hello and welcome to Episode 3 of Season 3 of Solarpunk Presence. Today I'll be talking with Mike Bickle, Professor Emeritus of Tectonics at the Department of Earth Sciences at Cambridge University, UK, and Fellow of the Royal Society. His specialty are the geologic and geochemical processes, such as the dissolution and precipitation of minerals, that control atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide over long time scales. He's also very interested in carbon capture and storage, which is an activity we're almost certainly going to have to engage in, in order to reach net zero emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases to the atmosphere.
0: Before we continue, I'd like to break in to say, We're a two-person operation, and we need your support to keep making Solarpunk content. If you like what we do, please consider supporting the podcast over at our Patreon at www dot dot com slash solarpunk There are a few different tiers for subscribers who get early access to episodes as well as bonus content written by myself and Christina. Consider rating and reviewing us as well and sharing this episode with your friends and people who might be interested in the podcast. Thank you for supporting the solarpunk community.
1: I should add one last thing before we begin. And that's it. A couple times during our discussion, the Zoom connection fizzled out and some of the audio didn't get recorded. So I've done my best to reconstruct what is missing. So sometimes you'll hear my voice come in and add a few missing words. Now, on to the episode. Good morning. Or I guess for you, it's good afternoon.
2: Yes, tea time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, dear. I've interrupted a very important moment. Um, well, thank you for talking to us today about carbon capture and storage, which is a little bit of a controversial topic, so it's always nice to know some of the facts behind it. But I also realize that carbon capture and storage means different things to different people, so maybe we should start by settling on a definition of carbon capture and storage for our conversation. So are we talking about trapping power plant and other chimney emissions of carbon dioxide and storing them safely away somehow? Or are we talking about extracting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it safely away? Or are we talking about both of these things? I
2: think we're really talking about all things. So ultimately, we want to capture carbon from anthropogenic sources that are going into the atmosphere, like particularly like power plants, but also industry in general and agriculture, if possible. And when it comes to the mechanisms We can use a variety of mechanisms like growing forests, putting rocks on fields that trap some CO2, or pumping it underground and storing it permanently. A number of the methods like growing forests, it's very desirable to increase the number of forests for a number of reasons, and that will draw CO2 down. But we have to be careful with some of the mechanisms because they're not very secure. Forests can burn. Forests will eventually decay and return CO2 to the atmosphere. So it's it's not a bad thing to do, but it's not very permanent. I think the biggest and the most necessary mitigations are going to be, one, not emitting CO2, which is hardly carbon capture and storage, but turning to renewable power. And then secondly, capturing CO2, capturing it from existing power plants if necessary, capturing it from industry. And I would argue that we're going to need to capture a significant amount from the atmosphere if we're going to avoid the worst uh, impacts of climate change. And to give an idea of the scale of the problem is that at the moment, the IPCC forecasts, that's the International Committee on Climate Change, predict that if we start reducing CO2 fairly drastically in 2020, remember that's three years ago now, by 2050, we need to be removing about uh, 5 gigatons a year from the atmosphere. And by 2100, maybe 10 gigatons a year from the atmosphere, which is about the same amount we're emitting at the moment. So it's now 2023. And although emissions have not increased, They've been roughly constant since 2010. They're still going up. So it's getting even more urgent. And it takes five years or more to build big plants. So, if, for example, the UK was going to increase its uh, renewables by increasing offshore wind, which is one of the major sources here, basically we'd have to increase the capacity by about four times by 2030 and about 20 times by 2050 this uh, sorry four times the present rate of increase by 2030 and since it takes as i said 5 years or so to build big plants big wind farms or big carbon capture projects there's actually no sign of that happening yet we're just not building them fast enough so we're we're going to overshoot in my opinion
1: okay so that preempts my second question which was are we at the point where we absolutely need to do this so it sounds like we were past the point where we absolutely start. We're past to the do point this. where we
2: could do it more cheaply. When it comes to air capture, uh, it probably costs four times as much or more. It's, the costs are uncertain because nobody's done it at scale yet. They're four times or more than say capturing from a power plant.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, we... that sounds, that's, that four times more doesn't sound that shocking to me because it must be so much easier to capture this highly concentrated carbon dioxide coming out of a, a chimney. It is,
2: it is more easy, but uh, yes, it's the amount of plant you have to build to do it. It's the same. Basically, you have a, at the moment, you have a solvent. You dissolve the CO2 in the solvent, and then you heat the solvent and boil it off, it's a bit like distilling in a way, and that has an energy penalty, and obviously the energy needed for that has to come from a renewable energy source if we do it at scale. Yes, the other thing I calculated, if we're capturing about 10 gigatons, carbon from the atmosphere at a cost of $100 a ton, that's about a trillion dollars a year, which is a large sum. But remember, the banks cost us a trillion dollars, or cost the US a trillion dollars in 2008 Mm. by going bankrupt. So it's not an impossible sum.
1: No, no, it isn't an impossible sum. But the technology, are we at the point where we could do this if we could spend a trillion dollars a year pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere? and storing it somewhere.
2: Yes, we should do it. We should be spending sums of money like that on switching to renewables and investing in carbon capture and storage. Yes, it's going to be slow to develop that because we then need, you know, something like a thousand big carbon storage sites, geological storage sites, pumped underground, which is the cheapest and safest way of storing CO2 and uh, the only one that has will have the capacity to store enough co2 and those those sites will take 5 or 10 years to develop each
1: so let me ask you what are these storage sites like and and how do you keep the carbon dioxide in them
2: carbon dioxide at pressure gets significantly denser so if you inject it below about a kilometre depth in the Earth's surface. It makes a much denser fluid, i. it occupies less volume. So the first thing is we want to inject it at those depths. And then secondly, although it's much denser, it's less dense than the water that fills pore spaces in the rock, so it tends to rise. So we need to inject it into porous formations like sandstones, and then we need to have a cap rock made of something like clay that is quite impermeable. And these sorts of formations are very like the formations that oil is found geologically, where that's been, that's light and that's been trapped for millions of years. And in fact, it's the same as formations where natural CO2 has been trapped underground in the same sorts of formations for millions or tens of millions of years. So geologically, it's been shown it's quite plausible that we can leave it down there for a long time. So. The expenses are compressing it and pumping it down and the geological work to make sure that the site is safe. And they've been doing this at a number of sites for quite a number of years. And one of the most famous is Sleipner in the North Sea where they've been injecting a million tonnes.
1: A million tonnes of carbon dioxide per year, starting in? in
2: 1996. So they've stored, you know, getting on to 25 million tonnes there and there's no sign of it escaping. And once it's stored and trapped under a cap rock, there's other processes that'll make the storage much more permanent. It dissolves in water and it'll precipitate carbonate minerals that lock up the CO2 in solid form. So I don't think there's any doubt that it works. Okay. It's just a cost.
1: Yeah, and, and the earth is big, so a thousand sites is entirely is entirely feasible.
2: It's feasible and there there is the capacity suitable storage sites to uh, store the amounts of CO2 we need for the next 50 or 100 years, basically.
1: So, Carrying out something like this would require the collection, storage and transportation and further storage of a lot of carbon dioxide. I'm thinking right now about how dangerous carbon dioxide is, because it may float compared to water, even as a condensed liquid, but as a gas, it's heavier than air. And so I remember there was a lake in Africa, um, a volcanic lake, that was one of these lakes that stratified. And it, because it was volcanic, there was a lot of carbon dioxide bubbling up out of the earth and collecting in the deeper waters of this lake. And then one day, the conditions were right. And after decades, the water column mixed and released this huge cloud of carbon dioxide gas that rolled down the mountain and settled at the deepest point, because it was heavier than air, and suffocated like an entire village worth of people, and thousands of people died. What I'm talking about here is the Lake Nyos disaster. This happened on the 21st of August, 1986, in northwestern Cameroon. And this overturning of this lake, into which a lot of carbon dioxide had accumulated over decades, as it was being volcanically released um, and was trapped in the deep waters, when this lake overturned and the cloud of CO2 came out, it killed 1,746 people and 3,500 livestock. Because the overturning of this lake triggered the release of somewhere between 100,000 and nearly 2 million tons of carbon dioxide. And as I said, it ran down the hill and settled in the village and uh, suffocated people. And this was a completely natural event. And it just serves as a reminder of the dangers of carbon dioxide. And, you know, if you had a reservoir that was leaking a lot of CO2, in principle, you could end up with a catastrophic situation like this if the conditions were right. Is this analogous to something we need to worry about with carbon capture and storage?
2: Yes, but if we do capture, then we'll have pipes carrying carbon dioxide. And we'll need to make sure that people living near them are not living in, you know, not put them...
1: Right in the middle of densely populated areas.
2: ...and make sure they don't leak. But those pipelines are arguably much less dangerous dangerous than oil or gas pipelines that when they leak, blow up. Mm. There have been some catastrophic failures. So we're used to dealing with industrial substances that are hazardous. And I think the hazards from CO2, although they're there, are much more manageable than hazardous from flammable liquids or explosive liquids and gases.
1: On the other uh, hand, you can see an explosion. I'm, you've just jogged a uh, memory. I remember it was a week or two ago, I was reading in the newspaper I think it was in Ohio and there was a carbon dioxide pipeline and the people in town did not know there was a carbon dioxide pipeline and it did leak. And I don't think anyone died, but people got, people ended up in the hospital because they were really, really sick and they didn't, the hospital didn't know what had happened because they didn't know there was this carbon dioxide pipeline. Not Ohio, Mississippi. On February 22nd, 2020, a mudslide ruptured a pipeline Near Sataria, Mississippi, that was carrying liquefied carbon dioxide toward Gulf Coast oil fields, presumably to be pumped into the ground to help push oil out, or, that is to say, used to enhance the recovery of oil. Carbon dioxide spewed out for more than four hours. In the confusion that followed, 45 people ended up being hospitalized due to carbon dioxide poisoning, and some of these people are still suffering ongoing effects. It was only through the heroic efforts of first responders that no one died.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's like all these things. You've got to uh, make sure it's safe. I mean, every time we spend money on, you know, big building projects, engineers make a calculation how many people get killed per Mm. million dollars spent or something. Mm -hmm. And so you have to balance the spending on safety with the risks compared to other risks to life. Yeah, pipelines and manageable, that's an engineering problem. The The other problem that worries a lot of people is, will the geological stores of carbon dioxide leak? Mm. And first of all, as I said earlier, I think there's good geological examples where it stayed down there for millions of years. When to solve the climate crisis, we only need to keep it down there about 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, you know, geologists and particular oil companies, know a lot about impermeable rocks because that's what traps their oil. We've shown that although CO2 reacts with these clay-like rocks, it reacts so slowly that it's not going to cause significant damage to them in the times we need it stored, or many, many tens of times times that. And then once we've pumped it underground, and when it's trapped, there's these other processes I mentioned that make it store permanently. And there's there's three of those. Basically, there's a significant surface tension between CO2 and water so that if you uh, CO2 flows through a rock, some of it gets trapped by surface tension in the pores as it flows along. A bit like if you put a sponge in water, it comes up and it, water will drain out. But then you get a significant amount left in the sponge. And basically, as CO2 flows through a sandstone, If it flows through a sandstone, the surface tension means that about 20 or 30 percent of the porosity remains filled with CO2 after the rest has flowed away. So if you're losing 20 percent of what you've got, very rapidly a plume of CO2 will, remember, become trapped by these capillary forces. So even if it escapes its prime storage site, often we have sedimentary sequences of rocks it's stored in. It'll move up to another sandstone layer with another cap rock, and it'll just basically get stored on the way.
1: Okay, so and I then- guess if you're starting from a kilometer below the surface, you have a <laughs> lot of secondary barriers before that thing escapes and causes problems. That being mm. said, okay, I can imagine, it's easy to imagine storing carbon dioxide in the Sleipner oil field in the North Sea, where <laughs> you know, you've know you got the ocean instead of a, a city. I'm thinking of all of the oil wells here in Los Angeles, and I bet they're never going to store carbon dioxide in any of these oil wells in Los Angeles because I think the local outrage and people would just not go for that.
2: Yes, it would be the same in the UK, but I don't know. Uh, I mean, in the Midwest, Wyoming, where we've worked on oil feed, they inject Carbon dioxide there, of course, to recover more oil, mm. and we've we've worked on those. We've worked on the natural CO two fields in the Colorado Plateau, which there's a whole lot. And curiously, they exploit that natural CO two now as a source for enhanced oil recovery.
1: Well, I mean, that's the cynical view of it, isn't it? That there that this will end up being a bit of greenwashing. Oh, we've captured all of this carbon and stored it, but really, they've mainly just used it to push out uh, for to enhance their recovery of of hydrocarbons.
2: We need to be careful about that. But it does stay soared. But all those areas that form ideal oil fields are ideal for CO2 storage. So whereas a very few of the sandstones in those areas have oil in them, there's a large number that are suitable for CO2 storage. They have cap rocks, they're porous, but there's never any oil produced from particular rocks to fill them. Oil is quite a rare geological mineral in that sense. So there's massive capacity there. It's the same in the UK. Our oil fields are offshore, which is much more publicly acceptable. But again, there's far more storage capacity for CO2 offshore than there is capacity that's filled with oil or gas. Mm -hmm. Although, of course, the exploited, the exhausted oil fields and gas fields and some of the technology has been explored. They've been mapped properly. So basically, they're ready for We've got enough information that makes them ready for storage.
1: Okay. So we really just need an economic setup where companies can come in and, and make money by doing this. Yes. And we need I mean, to set standards and have regulations. and Is anyone working on this?
2: Yes, people are working on that. I mean, in Europe, they've developed a series of regulations. The storage has to leak not more than 0.1% a year, which is a very tight mm-hmm. uh and leak that means
1: leak out of the primary reservoir or that means leak all the I way to leak the leak. Leak out of the
2: primary reservoir, yes. Okay.
1: And how do you monitor that?
2: Uh that's a good question. Oh. But you can you can follow where the CO two is using seismic images, you know, mm-hmm. sending okay. sound waves into the earth and looking at the reflections. And for example, at Sleipn in the North Sea, they've done this very successfully with multiple surveys every couple of years over after over the last twenty years or so. And we can follow where the CO2 is going very successfully. Obviously, if it gets near the surface, then you might, if it starts to leak at the surface, you would detect it directly. And again, that's it's easy and fairly cheap to put CO2 sensors up in case there were leaks at the surface. Okay. It's rather interesting. If one big site in the North Sea leaked, it would drop the pH of the seawater quite low uh, around the storage site. But I remember a slide from someone talking about this if we don't stop atmospheric CO2 rising successfully then by 2050 the pH of the whole north sea would be down to that level anyway of leakage from one storage site
1: okay well okay I mean but this is this is the kind of information we need to have right so we can make yes. informed decisions <clears throat> no this is interesting to think that there is this this whole new industry that could spring up we just have to pave the way for it and convince people that it's safe and secure and necessary and then convince governments to set up the regulations because this clearly will be very important but it also this is what we do as human beings i don't think we recognize it enough and how important it is for our success we set standards and standards mm-hmm. are really the key to the the survival and thriving of civilization
2: and what's challenging is we can do this as small social groups quite successfully, a family, uh, most families.
1: Oh, I don't know. Some families work. aren't so successful. Some don't, know.
2: <laughs> but the moment we get bigger than that, mm. it gets more difficult. So, you know, we can manage fairly well nationally. We don't really seem to have done it globally, except coping with the ozone problem was possibly the only global solution to a pressing problem that seems to have been solved. So. You know mm-hmm. that sets a precedent.
1: It does, although somehow that problem—I guess—that problem was a little bit more simple, and it didn't require people to change the way they lived.
2: It changed big companies. Uh, it required big companies to change the way they built their refrigerators, which presumably put them under a significant—you know—significant you know, significant cost burden. But it wasn't.
1: But is the government's is...
2: prepared to uh, to make them do that, basically?
1: Well, and it affected all the companies, so nobody was exempt from it. Yes, so, exactly.
2: And I, I pre- if, you know, the, the oil companies I talked to, if people said CO two is going to cost so much a dollar, you know, so much a ton for emitted CO two in twenty thirty, would be quite happy for that, because then they would have a firm financial basis for planning investments and what they do. And the difficulty, their problem is they don't know what it's going to be and since oil companies make investments that are good for 10 20 years or more they desperately want to know and that's that that's a big uncertainty for them as well
1: so are they lobbying for stuff like this
2: <laughs> probably not hard enough
1: <laughs> okay well <laughs> i, I mean they,
2: the people we talk to in companies at reasonably high levels certainly certainly believe that i mean one of the people we've had conversations with andrew mckenzie who was chief executive for bhp Militon, you know they've—that's uh, a huge company. They've given up all their oil and gas and coal exploitation, except for coking coal used for making steel, under the guise that if we don't have steel, we can't build wind farms or solar panels. Ultimately, mm. and you know this is part of the problem of transitioning—is we can't we can't cut everything off because we need to keep civilization going. To uh, to make the transition effective.
1: So what's, what's interesting about this, I mean, we are really on the cusp of presuming we manage it, a major revolution, sort of like the industrial revolution. And when you look at how much something like the industrial revolution, not just changed people's lives, but, but upended countries and, and, you know, political dynasties or, you know, royal dynasties or whatever.
2: Yes. It's,
1: you do sort of wonder what we're, what we're in for as a side effect of this change that we need to make, of this revolution the whole world needs to go through.
2: But it's a different one because the Industrial Revolution gave some countries a huge advantage and that we then went out and colonized the rest of the world. This time we've got to change technology, but we've got to persuade nearly everybody to play ball. Mm. The hopeful signs are that China takes this very seriously, mm-hmm. and some of the U.S. politicians take it quite seriously, mm-hmm. like the inflation reduction. What's the?
1: Yeah, that thing, the inflation that reduction thing. act. Yeah. yeah,
2: spending a huge amount of money on that, and some of it's in the right direction.
1: Well, and a lot of it is to lock in American influence over this. Right, the German companies are furious because they're shut a bit. They're shut out from. You know, uh, they don't have subsidies, so their products Isn't will become more expensive. EU
2: coming up with a similar mm. plan. and It's just leaving Brexit-ridden UK left out, basically.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I hope you guys get your act together.
2: <laughs> yes. It's, well, they're meant to be building two big CCS schemes at the moment. Okay. And we live in hope, but previously they had similar billion-pound projects, which were Twice cancelled because of financial crises. Mm. Uh, it's so easy for the treasury just to cut the money off when something goes wrong, and that puts you back five or ten years.
1: Wow. And that's crazy because it's it's actually it's it's not just spending; it's an investment that will yield yes. returns, massive returns. I don't know. I it's crazy.
2: Yes, <laughs> Well it's illogical, and we are crazy as a species. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't really have an answer to that. So, I mean, it's hard. It's the, when the system gets so complex, it's really hard for our little brains to grasp it all, I guess. And we're yes. just not also just not schooled to look at
2: systems. Yes. I mean, we're in, you know, we're academics. We are schooled to look at systems so we can appreciate the problems. But most people are not trained to do that. And they're suspicious of politicians.
1: Oh, fair enough. Yeah. But but also, yeah, as you said, they're busy trying to feed their families and keep their heads mm. above water and do their work mm. and live their lives. It's, and it is all a lot to deal with. Mm. So, well, I hope we manage it. And yes. yeah, and this is interesting, the, the thought that we will be setting up companies to really, I mean, I guess there was already a few, but and setting up the regulation and getting this carbon capture and storage going, because <coughs> it's going to happen, I think.
2: It'll have to happen, yes. It'll have to. It's when is the question.
1: Are there other methods for carbon capture and storage?
2: There's a number of other ways of storing it, of variable uh, reliability and variable variable capacity. Some rocks are very reactive. So in Iceland, they've had considerable success injecting it underground into the volcanic rocks. And they've shown that there the reactions are fast. So it's turned into. Carbonate mineral calcite that locks up CO2 almost immediately in solid form. But the number of places on Earth where you can do that sort of storage are rather limited. So it'll work in some areas, but not in most areas. The other sorts of storage are turning the CO2 into carbonate minerals at the surface of the Earth. One useful method is to use things like mine waste that's quite reactive, blast furnace. Wastes from steel are quite reactive, and if you pump c o two into them, you can turn that into carbonate. Another method that's very popular at the moment and is widely touted and used as a CO2, for selling c o two credits in fact is fertilizing fields so again, you scatter reactive minerals on fields and c o two dissolves in rainwater, and natural process reacts with these minerals. And dissolves the CO2 in water, and then that may be precipitated. But we've got to be very careful with these methods and audit them properly. And at the moment, although people are very keen on it, in fact, a number of studies, in fact, one done by two of my colleagues shows that the global capacity for this rivers that eventually carry the CO2 to the ocean could only carry a, limit, a limited amount of CO2, even if all the land surface was fertilized to the efficiency that people putting the ideas forward think. So I think all these mechanisms, if we have a price for CO two, which is possibly the only way of coping with it, they all may be profitable. But But will they
1: add up to
2: the five or ten gigatons a year we need to sequester? And that that's the problem.
1: Yeah, so it, it requires sort of a, a war effort almost.
2: It requires a war effort, yes. But okay. not as expensive as a war.
1: Well, and hopefully with not so many dead people.
2: <laughs> but- <laughs> well, that too. But I mean, you don't, you found industry, you employ people to do it. So uh, there's no net loss in that sense. Yeah, that's and- true.
1: You're spinning the economic wheel faster. Yes,
2: exactly. Yeah. But which you- is what war does. But then yeah. war destroys everything you make, which is uh, rather counterproductive.
1: Yeah. I guess we're seeing that a bit firsthand—not firsthand, but we're in real that at time. At the moment,
2: yes, exactly. It's quite scary
1: here. Oh, and then infuriating! <laughs> absolutely infuriating. When you, I—I I think before I hadn't realized how much war cost people in terms of yes. losing everything that they've built up over their whole lives. And it, yes, oh, it's infuriating to watch.
2: War's been going on forever. Just because Ukraine is rather close to us, yeah. Wars elsewhere have been going on continuously all the time we just tend to ignore them as a danger
1: that's true they haven't got the same news coverage as something that happens someplace well you know i could drive there in a day's drive from where i live so so somehow it is different so it clearly is a big challenge in front of us as we say needing kind of a war effort to, to uh to achieve fast enough for it to matter so do you think we'll manage to stabilize or even decrease the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere in time, Uh, in time to avoid the truly scarier prospects of solar radiation management, where we're doing things like shooting sulfate aerosols into the atmosphere or taking some even more drastic measures to shade the Earth from sunlight in order to stop global warming.
2: I agree that I think they're very dangerous because if we start doing that and then something goes wrong, like we can't maintain them, Then we'll be in a worse situation with a massive greenhouse and no protection. And the feedbacks could be horrendous. So, you know, it's like trying to walk the plank blindfold. (laughs) If anything goes wrong, you've had it, basically. And the air capture is a much better route to invest large amounts of technology. I think the real difficulty with implementing all these things is that the public... Don't like spending money when it's their money. And in Cambridge, we've just had a poll. It's only a voluntary poll on imposing uh, traffic charging to reduce pollution, transport, and everything else in Cambridge. And 60 something percent of people voted against it. Mm. This is in a country where more than 60 percent of people think climate change is an urgent problem. So it's clear they're not willing to do something that actually is going kind to of cost them money and not. Very much yet. They don't realize how little effort it costs to not use a car in somewhere like Cambridge. Yeah. Cars go very slowly. So it's people the problem. And I think we're not going to see a solution. We're not going to see people put money into CCS until the climate disasters become really obvious, which I thought would be about starting in 2030. Although the media has picked on it now, (laughs) we haven't seen nothing yet, is my guess.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a bit abstract, isn't it? It's really hard to connect driving your car
2: or, you know, warming your house to global change. I think people are just not convinced as, you know, they're not convinced, They're not frightened enough is the problem.
1: Oh, yeah. No, that's, I, I, I agree with you there. And the scary thing is that this stuff is exponential, right? And I yes. don't think people quite realize what that means, how you can go from one day to the next from something that's manageable to something that's disastrous. Um, mm. And then it just keeps getting worse faster and faster. I don't know. Yes, you don't light. worry
2: about it till you get flooded out. And then life is so dreadful. You don't have time to worry about anything anyways. Hmm. Is the problem.
1: Of course, there were some floods. When was that in the UK? Not quite 10 years ago. Really terrible rainfall. And that didn't, or, or even just, uh, I guess that was a year ago, even. Yes.
2: Or- no, we've had fairly good We've always had fairly good floods Okay. and um, continue to build on floodplains and everything else to make them and cut trees down to make them worse. Yeah. Again, from a public perspective, from my perception, you know, do I know if they're getting worse? Uh, yeah, we had very bad floods in York where my daughter lives, for example, but she lived high enough up not to be affected, of course.
1: Mm-hmm. D- yeah, that's true. There have always been horrible floods. I am thinking of Cambridge, which is built right mm. on the fence. But there's this, you know, centuries-old flood mitigation devices, essentially, Um, and so flooding is probably not as bad now as it used to be, Um, you know, a couple of centuries ago. People don't have to live on the island of Ely; they can actually live down by
2: the river. That's what's changed. They built. They didn't live in the flood. Yeah, historically, they didn't live in the areas that got flooded if they could help it, because they had historical memory, and then they drained the fens. Now we're waiting to see whether the floods, a sea level rises, whether the drainage can cope. Of course,
1: I mean the fans would be amazing if they were reflooded. Although I guess a lot of people live there now. So yes,
2: yes. <laughs> um,
1: so I think you know, although it would take a miracle for either of us to be around to see it, what could the world fifty years from now look like in terms of successful carbon management?
2: Well, I think they would have moved to essentially hundred percent renewables with carbon capture and storage to take care of emissions that are impossible to remove some industrial processes produce co2 uh cement making for a start but we may replace cement with other materials although that might have a huge cost uh steel making produces co2 although again you can probably reduce the amount of co2 and agriculture land use change but i think 50 years, they'll be in the middle of trying to cope with the mess, i.e. trying to reduce atmospheric CO2, coping with the impacts of climate change, which will be far more expensive than they are at the moment. And of course, what's worrying, if we have significant climate change, you then have significant movement of refugees, which leads to a lot of social and uh, economic instability. And so how the popula- you know, global population copes with that in 50 years is is unknown, but we haven't been very good at coping with instability in the last few hundred years or a few thousand years. So or even
1: the last five years or 10 years. I'm years, thinking.
2: Nothing's changed very much. No.
1: I mean, look at what happened in 2015 in Europe with the stream of, of refugees coming in from places like Syria and yes. how disastrously we handled that and how unkindly we handled that. And then you, we ended up with with things like Brexit as a result, partly as a result of that. And people are not very tolerant of suddenly having all of these people come in. And yet these people are not the people who've created the climate change problem for the most part.
2: No, I mean, in the UK, yes, it's a big political problem.
1: Well, I mean, it is also a big political problem in Germany, where I live now. Well, yeah, uh, but maybe on the positive side will we be running on fusion power in 50 years, have minimized agriculture's release of greenhouse gases and through carbon capture and storage have brought carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere back down to 280 parts per million. So you seem to be
2: skeptical that we will have reached that level of success in
1: 50 years.
2: I think we might in 100 years, because I think it's going to take us 50 years to implement all these technological fixes to stop co2 increasing basically fusion power would be nice if it works economically but i suspect we can run on renewables if it doesn't it's a matter of what's cheapest and where you are so there's you know there's a number of renewables here in the uk we've got lots of wind power the us has got lots of wind power in fact and solar if we cover every building Living in a city with solar panels, and there's no reason not to do that. And they're cheap enough now; they pay. We could generate huge amounts of solar power. When it comes to energy storage, batteries are getting much, much more efficient. Whether we can build them all, these are questions that may take time. So I think, you know, the number of the technological fixes are there. It's a matter of implementing them, and that's what will take time.
1: Hmm. Yeah, you know, I just uh, flew in to Los Angeles uh, like 36 hours ago, something like that. And it is amazing if, you, when you, you come in over the city and there are these millions and millions of roofs and hardly any of them have solar panels. And it is so really? sunny here. You just think these people are crazy. <laughs> Why aren't they doing this? Is
2: that this? because power is still so cheap in the US I that really, they can't be bothered?
1: I don't know what the reason is. I really don't know. I it's stubbornness, I think, on some level.
2: Because mm, even in the UK they pay. Okay, they pay, you know, it takes a few years to get the money back. So mm-hmm. uh
1: I think if once more people have electric cars, then the interest in generating electricity with solar panels will go up because, you know, right. then that's free fuel. Yes. Whereas here and people the electricity
2: don't... prices have gone up in Europe.
1: Yeah hugely. Yeah. Yes. yes. In the last year it's been crazy. Um, but also in Europe, at least. Okay, I'm talking from a Californian perspective where we don't really need to heat, although I guess some people air-condition their houses. Um, but where I live in Germany, and obviously where you live in the UK, you have to spend a lot of money keeping your house warm. And so yes. switching over to a heat pump is very enticing, especially if you can couple it to, to solar panels.
2: Which- yes, except, of course, you need the heat. I mean, this is a problem with heating is... In the winter, in a cold snap, the amount of gas heating used in the UK is order a magnitude or two more than the sort of electricity usage. Mm. Okay. And one thing that the government needs to do urgently, which is holding us up in the UK, is make them develop the electric power grid so it can cope with all these things. Because if we have heat pump, if the heat pumps as the mechanism, if we use electricity for heating, then we have to be able to deliver a lot more electricity. And although they increase the efficiency of heating, you get about three times as much heat out of a heat pump as you would from an electric fire, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you still need you'll still need a huge amount of power delivered in cold stamps in these in European countries. Yeah, US a com- com- lot of the US as well, in fact.
1: Yeah, I was reading that about the the grid in the UK and I I have to say it's it's also a problem in Germany where the companies that control the grid and are responsible for maintaining it and expanding it are saying, "Oh, we have to put a cap on heat pumps, there have to be no more solar panels, no more uh charging stations for electric cars because because we dropped the ball and didn't develop the grid." And you just think, "Who didn't see this coming?"
2: Yes. No, I mean they've been told we need this for 20 or 30 years now since the first IPCC report came out. And it's Mm -hmm. like like all aspects, but people are just not implementing it because the political cycle of five years for a government is too short to worry about a 30-year problem, which is now probably a 10-year problem, but never mind.
1: Oh, but it, it is crazy. It is really crazy. And I guess on some level it boils down to money and looking at the polls and seeing what people want you to spend money on. And it's, we're really, we've really shot ourselves in the foot <laughs> by being so short-sighted. Yeah. So what's it going to take to inspire us besides, you know, having to actually face a lot of horrible, severe weather and watch people die in heat waves and things like that.
2: Calamities. That's the only thing going to scare us. People accept a certain amount of loss and if floods impact other people, well, not them, that's just a news item. It has to impact them basically.
1: But it's, You know, on the other hand, there are lots of people, especially the youngsters, or at least I've heard, that who have this crippling anxiety over climate change, and they're terrified of the future. And so that fear is out there, but somehow it's translating into anxiety instead of action.
2: What is interesting is whether this generation of young people, as they mature, keep those ideas, or whether Mm. they behave like the rest of us and become... More conservative as they get older, and their their concern is their family making enough money, a career, and all the other things that uh, occupy your middle aged years.
1: Yeah. The but other did, thing is did you get conservative as you got older?
2: Maybe not politically, but I'm more conservative. I don't like things changing so much.
1: <laughs> okay, but okay. Um, except you're all for tackling a problem that's going to cause us a lot. I mean, you're not paralyzed into inaction by no, liking no. things stable.
2: The other thing that worries me is the campaigners on climate change. They basically vent all their are at mainly the oil companies or coal as though shutting them down is going to solve the problem. And it's not going to solve the problem at all because people need energy. And what we need is a transition, not just to stop doing something. What we've been discussing is how you make that transition, how much it costs, and that's what needs the impetus behind it. And if the money and the taxation and everything else is moved in that direction, then these companies will have to follow suit. It's it's you know if if you have a capitalist economy, then money basically drives everything. Unfortunately, mm. so you have to work that. You can't just rail against one set of. Uh, you know, it's like trying to. Sp- like the war against drugs, basically.
1: Yeah. Well, I think we like scapegoats. And and let's face it, the oil companies have not played as fairly as they could have. And they have held the their publicity and, you know, the... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They've kind of clouded the issue for the last 40 years. Yeah, some and- of
2: them. Some of them are much worse than others, I think. I mean, the ones in the UK, we know, have mainly admitted climate change is a serious problem. And basically, they've got divisions that want to do something about it, but they can't move until basically the financial situation is correct because if they suddenly diverted their resources into renewables or geological carbon storage where there's no, you know, there's a net cost to doing that, they'd go bankrupt versus the the other companies.
1: So where has all the money they've earned gone?
2: Ultimately, it goes to shareholders.
1: Okay so it's those a very who have
2: pensions those of us who have shares uh okay it's well most people probably have pensions and uh this is the problem is you know we spread the wealth among ourselves basically we all you know we buy petrol for our cars
1: mm. and
2: as i've said people are there's still a reluctance a large lot of people are reluctant to buy electric cars
1: oh but they're so fun Yes, no, no. <laughs> they are so fun.
2: <laughs> yes, well, Hazel has. We have a pure electric car, and we have a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now the range has increased. I wouldn't have a hybrid. Yeah, they're perfectly capable of doing quite enough before you recharge to travel long distances. Yes, they drive, and they're much nicer to drive. It's much. Uh...
1: Yeah, and it, you, you have all the other tailpipe emissions that you're not emitting as well, like the nitrous yes. oxides and, and yeah, stuff.
2: exactly pollution.
1: Yeah. Noise. yeah. I guess we've gotten a little off track but it's fun to talk to you about these things thank you very much for talking to me this has been really <laughs> fun and interesting and it's fun to talk to you yeah. again, it's been a while so
2: yes and I've enjoyed talking to you
1: and that's a wrap for episode 3 of season 3
0: thank you for listening to Solar Funk Presence a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the Neutral, Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe peoples. And in Germany. The
1: opening and closing music for this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol, available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, join our Patreon, at www.patreon.com backslash
0: solarpunkpresence or share the podcast with friends, family, and people you know who might be interested in our guests and what we have to say. We'd also love it if you could write us a nice review on your podcatcher of choice because every review bumps us higher in the algorithm's priority so we can reach more listeners. Until the next episode, keep dreaming and keep up the good work.